0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled at the prospect of what we don't understand. We're comforted, though, in the knowledge that you are faithful and that you are good and that you can be trusted when we don't understand. And so, Father, I pray you would help us to uh, not just see our circumstances as they are, but more importantly, Father, would you help us to see you as you are. And Father, would you bring this study of the book of Job uh, to a conclusion in a way that is a blessing to our souls. And so we need your help for that, and we ask uh, you to be good to us now, in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, this morning we arrive at the end of our study of the book of Job. We have seen... Satan attack Job, we've seen Satan attack God's character, we've seen Job's friends blame Job, we've seen Job defend himself, we've seen uh, God bring uh, charges and questions to Job, and the end of it now has come down to what we see before us today in Job chapter 42. And for all of the complexity of the suffering, for all of the uh, things that we don't understand and certainly that Job didn't see and understand, there is still truth about God that has not yet been explored in the book of Job. And I might try and get at it this way. If you were to interview Job and you were to ask him about the goodness of God, what do you suppose he would say? If you were to quote to him Psalm 34, verse 8, and say, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. How would Job respond? What would he say? I suspect that he wouldn't be very excited about God's goodness. I think he would affirm that God is free to bring trouble Um, I think he would say that God is free to bring calamity, and he might have forgotten, though, that God is free to dispense grace. God is free, whether Job remembers or not, to forgive and restore, just as he was free to send trouble. And one of the struggles that we have, and that certainly Job's friends have, and the book of Job presents us with, is this idea that God himself is free. And the reality is, we don't really want God to be free, because if he's free, we can't understand him, we can't manage him, we can't always predict him, and we want him to be a little more simple. We want him to work by formulas or by systems, So we can predict and make certain that things are going to happen. We don't want his freedom, this is probably the most important thing, we don't want his freedom to impinge on our freedom. And yet we get to this final chapter of the book of Job, and the thing that Job asserts, and then the thing that God reasserts, is his freedom to be sovereign and to be good. Look at the the first uh, six verses, which are uh, Job's response then to God's final speech. I think the essence of humility toward God is to trust his sovereign hand when you can't understand what that hand is doing. In fact, in order to make sense of suffering and to find our place in the world, we must affirm God's absolute sovereignty. And this is what Job does in uh, chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. He says, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. I know you can do all things, no plan of yours can be thwarted. Consider the staggering implications of such a confession. God can do anything, and nothing can stop him from doing anything that he wants to do. Or to turn it over and examine the other side... God does precisely what he wants to do. The things that happen in this world happen because God himself is purposing them. And there is nothing that can get in the way of that purpose. Nothing in the physical universe, nothing in the spiritual universe. And this is one of the things that we have a very hard time um, comprehending and just emotionally coming to grips with. I told you a few weeks ago about Gerald Sitzer, Sitzer who uh, wrote the book, A Grief Disguised, uh, and talked about his, the way that he processed the loss of his mother, his wife, and his daughter. And he understood the implications of this level of sovereignty when it came to suffering. Here's what he wrote. He said, but over time, I realized the tra- trajectory of my grief had set me on a collision course with God and that eventually I would have to wrestle with this most complex of issues. I knew I had to make peace with God's sovereignty. Reject God altogether or settle for a lesser God who lacked the power or desire to prevent the accident. Did you see his three choices there? Come to peace with God's sovereignty. Reject God altogether or settle for a lesser God. He goes on. My loss made God seem terrifying and inscrutable. For a long time I saw his sovereignty as a towering cliff in the winter, icy cold and windswept. I stood in my misery at the base of the cliff and I looked up at its foreboding, unscalable wall. I left overwhelmed, intimidated, crushed by its hugeness. There was nothing inviting or comforting about it. It loomed over me, completely ominous. I was completely oblivious to my presence and pain. I defied climbing. It mocked my puniness. I yelled at God to acknowledge my suffering and take responsibility for it, but all I heard was a lonely echo of my own voice. I love that honesty about the sovereignty of God. It is that same cliff that provides a shelter in the time of storm. The same confidence led Charles Spurgeon, the London uh, preacher from 100 years ago, to say, I believe that every particle of dust dances in the sunbeam, that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes, that every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of a devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. See, even a hundred years ago, he talked about our situation, didn't he? The march of the devastating Pestilence. Well, Spurgeon, as you might expect when he says it that way, was challenged that this is nothing more than fatalism and stoicism. And he replied, what is fate? Fate is this, whatever is must be. But there's a difference between that and providence. Providence says whatever, God's or, whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some great end. Fate does not say that. There is all the difference between fate and providence that there is between a man with good eyes and a blind man. In other words, this confession of Job ought to be our continuing Confession. That we can be quiet when we don't understand what we ought to say. If we can't improve the silence, we won't say anything. We won't babble on about things that are too deep for us. And we will affirm that God is free. That he is free to do as he pleases and no purpose of his can be thwarted. One of the beautiful things, though, is that a true vision of God transforms for us a true vision of ourselves. Hear Job's words in verses 4 through 6. He said, I had known about you, but now I've seen you. And everything changed. He said, I'd known you by the hearing of the ear, but now I have seen you. When we experience God, we despise ourselves. There's a lot of talk about experiencing God. In fact, a popular curriculum encourages us to experience God. But if Job's experience means anything, you may not want to experience God. Your self-esteem might be too fragile. Because experiencing God is a radically terrifying experience. God has experienced through suffering in a way that he has not experienced in any other means. Job said, Job said he knew God through the hearing of the ear. You know, he had heard the Sunday school lesson, he had heard the sermons, but he didn't have the firsthand experience with God. But now he did. What's more, when he was the most prominent man in the land, he had his reputation, he had all of his stuff, he had all of his children, but he did not have an experience with a God who was sovereign over all things seen and unseen. He was relatively unfamiliar with the God who is sovereign and free. And I have to say that that is probably, if I if I could summarize for you or for myself, what is the most precious aspect of this suffering, the most, in fact, the most precious statement in um, this. Book of Job, it's just that. That what Job received through his suffering was an experience with God so that he would know God in a way that God had been unknown to him before. And I want to say to those of you who are suffering and struggling that you have in your struggle an opportunity to see God and not just hear about Him secondhand. Not just mutter some sort of platitudes that you heard from somebody else, but rather your suffering enables God and His purposes and His beauty to be your own. And Once you'd heard about Him, but now you see Him. And Job affirms that God is free to do as he pleases. Nothing can stop him. And then the commentary on this begins. And we're told then that God is free to be angry and free to forgive. Look at verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. so with an ironic twist god expresses his anger with the three friends the friends had themselves through the course of the majority of this book said that god was the object or excuse me said that job was the object of god's wrath really it was the other way around they had said that job was unspiritual And now God had said, it's the other way around. It was the friend's not Job who stood under God's anger. And God was angry with them because they spoke wrongly while while Job spoke rightly. Now I think this is this is really interesting because the, the struggle is real. The, because this is a complex thing, right? The friends had spoken wrongly, though they were sure they were right. Job too was pretty sure he was right, and he had he had and he had spoken correctly. But what has what have we learned from God's two speeches? That Job was foolish with what he said. In fact, in verse four, Job admits that he spoke about things he didn't understand. And here God affirms what he said about, Job, what, he, what Job said about God. So there is a sense in which Job has spoken both incorrectly and correctly. I think he spoke correctly by insisting that God was acting in freedom, not by formulas. That God was free, though Job didn't always like it. The friends had spoken wrongly, saying that God was not free, but rather he was constrained by a formula. They believed that God only responded, working by some system of um, good behavior in return for reward. And they wanted a God like that, because a God like that is easier to deal with than a God who works um, freely. And does what he pleases. No, I think Job had spoken rightly. In that he had had the facts right. He had spoken of things that were too wonderful for him. I think he had the facts right and his feelings were wrong. God's commendation here is for the right facts. He had said uh, things correctly about him. But the challenge in the preceding chapters was that Job's attitude did not align with the facts. Job's attitude was defensive and hurt and put more on God than God deserved. The sacrifice then that God asked the friends to bring tells us a little bit about how God perceived this sin. It must have been a large offense because God demanded a large sacrifice. When you compare this with the sacrifice that God asked, uh, other sacrifices God asked in the Old Testament, um, it, it looks as though God's asking for a whole barnyard to be sacrificed for this particular sin. That tells me that God takes it seriously when someone demeans him Or makes him less than he truly is. May we all be careful about the way we speak of our sovereign and free God. It's interesting too that God included in the restoration an insistence that Job pray for his friends. I think Job's intercession indicates that there is a horizontal dimension to this vertical forgiveness. God knows that real freedom doesn't come without both components. This episode would not be finished if these men prayed in private and then tried to pretend that nothing happened. So perhaps you have felt like you are in need of forgiveness from God. I want to assure you that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sin and will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He can and will forgive you. But God knows that there is often someone else affected by your sin. And so can you, will you go to them and ask for their forgiveness? Because vertical forgiveness frequently requires a horizontal restoration. Or maybe the shoe is on the other foot. Maybe someone else has sinned against you and you're harboring bitterness toward them. And it is a spiritual problem until you can let them off your hook and forgive them like God asked Job to forgive his friends. And you see right here is the beauty of the cross. It is this whole aspect this whole topic of forgiveness that makes me thankful to be a Christian because God is free to forgive because of Jesus he can forgive us because the offense that caused him problem was nailed to the cross of Christ it is the sacrifice of Jesus that enables God to forgive. Bulls and rams may have covered the sin, but they anticipated a better sacrifice. In fact, we're told that the sin, even of Job's friends, was in God's mind when Christ went to the cross. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, uh, it tells us that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That would be the sins of Job and the sins of Job's friends. He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, and he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so that God could be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so what we see with the struggles and the, and the sin and the, the, the wrong thoughts and the wrong talk and the sub, uh, you know, the, the thoughts and the words that are not worthy of God. When we see all of this, that the book of Job is built on the foundation of Christ's sacrifice to forgive sin and to defeat Satan. It is the beauty of Christ that rescues the problems of Job. And I can only imagine that, practically speaking, this confession, this forgiveness and this sacrifice must have been excruciating for Job and his friends. I mean, think back to what they called each other, the way they talked to each other. But Eliphaz and his friends appropriated the forgiveness of God by trusting and obeying God. And God forgave them. He accepted and he responded to Job's prayer. This horizontal forgiveness is related to vertical forgiveness. Forgiveness produces freedom. It does so for God and it does for us. The freedom of God extends beyond merely His freedom to be angry and to forgive. Rather, God is also free to take away and to give back. He is free free to, to remove and to restore. And that's what we see in verses 10 through 15. And I'm just going to admit This has been a problem for me, because it just seems too easy, doesn't it? It seems too good to be true that the ending would end like this. That Job would have a fairy tale ending, and he would get his family and his finances completely restored. There's one commentator, though, that I think offers some good suggestions uh, about why this fairy tale epilogue uh, is part of Job's story. He says, First, Job had to be vindicated publicly. Otherwise, we would have been left with a large gaping hole if Job was not vindicated in the end, making him look the part of a rejected villain, a bad guy who had bad things coming his way, just like the friend suggested, rather than a righteous man. Who had been who had endured severe testing second the rigid overstated orthodoxy of the friends had to be exposed and this came by way of a divine rebuke and the call for Job to pray for them in verses 7 through 10 it was important that God himself rejected the, the often heartless application of orthodox wisdom theology rather than simply hoping that the readers would make the proper deductions from the poetic dialogue. Then he says, third, the truth of the orthodox wisdom tradition did need to be affirmed since the scriptures do teach that the godly will be blessed and the ungodly cursed, either in this world or the world to come, or both. To throw this out altogether would actually challenge one of the moral pillars of God's universe expressed concisely by the Apostle Paul. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will uh, from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so Job in the first chapter Uh, affirmed and confessed. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. God has the right to do what he wants with my stuff. We're told how much God restores to Job then in verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much. As he had before. Twice as much. It says God restored Job after he had prayed for his friends. And so it makes me ask the question was God waiting and wondering what Job would do? Saying, in effect, hmm, if he prays, then I'll restore. If he doesn't, I won't. No, I think this is just simply a statement of the timing of the, rest- of the restoration. It happened after he prayed for his friends. To maintain that God gives Job stuff back only when Job behaves is to do exactly what the friends did and to make God subject to some behavioral formula. It makes God contingent upon an uncertain response of Job so that if Job is good, he gets his stuff back. If he's bad, he doesn't. One of the primary messages of this book is that God doesn't work by such a simplistic formula. I think there's another temptation here, and it's the temptation of materialism that is all too common. And one of the ones that is, you you might even say up for grabs as uh, our economy uh, begins to wind down because of all the shutdown. And that is that we're to think, I mean, we're tempted to think that the point of all this is that Job gets his material possessions back. We're programmed to think that material blessing equals God's blessing and and that this material culture wants us to have more and better things. And If you think that getting all your stuff back is the point, you miss the point. If you think... Job receiving more things is contingent upon his praying for his friends. You miss the point. The point is that God is free to restore Job. All that he lost and more. The sentence in verse 10 is not really about Job. Did you notice that? Yeah, it's not about Job. It's about God. God is the actor. Job is merely the recipient of God's work of blessing. Look at verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then again in verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Now Job, or excuse me, God restores relatives and friends to Job in order to comfort him. In verse 11, and it just makes me ask several questions about these fair weather friends and his fickle family. Why did they come so late? Where were they when Job was suffering? Why did they come after God God had restored uh, Job? Why did they all bring one piece of silver? And why one gold ring? We may not know the answer to these questions, but the message is clear that part of the restoration is the healing of relationships, that healing and comfort from other people is part of the restoration. That some of Job's suffering was the fact that he sat alone until he sat with three friends who gave him no comfort. And so the message here that we're to get is that the healing is complete and the healing extended to Job's relationships. In verses 12 through 15, uh, and I'm not going to read it, uh, God details the specifics of his blessings to Job. Job's possessions are doubled. And if you look back in chapter one, you'll notice that the numbers are exactly twice What Job started with, his children are restored and his children are blessed, verses 13 through 15. He has the same, uh, they're they're restored to the same degree as he had in the beginning. And one of the things that's interesting is that the the daughters are named while the sons are anonymous. Which is very unusual in an ancient uh, book like this. The the names of Job's daughters emphasize their beauty. In fact, the meanings of their names have to do one with flowers, another with fragrances, and yet another with makeup. It tells us in verse 15 that Job shares his inheritance with his daughters, which again goes against the prevailing land use laws of the day. And why are we told this? I think there are a couple reasons. First is God wants us to get the message that there is uh, clearly enough to share. There is bounty beyond imagination. The children had enough to split the inheritance ten ways rather than seven. And second, I think there's just a hint that Job was free to do as he pleased. And Job's freedom to bless his children parallels and highlights God's freedom to bless his children. And so, verses 16 and 17 simply tell us that uh, Job closes his long and full life trusting a sovereign and free God, who is ultimately good. It tells us he lived 140 years after the calamity, which means most commentators believe that would make him over 200 years old when he died. And throughout the scripture, a long life is a sign of blessing from God as our grandchildren. And it tells us that Job... Didn't merely see his grandchildren, but his great-great-grandchildren. He died an old man, experiencing the blessing and the goodness of God. And so, I think the conclusion of this book should remind us of Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger lasts only for a moment. But his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night. But rejoicing comes in the morning. God is good. He is free to bring suffering, yes. And he is free to bring blessing. He delights to bring blessing that overshadows the pain. This is not merely a Pollyanna add-on to an otherwise tragic story. This is helpful because I think it helps us understand the nature and character of God. It's helpful because you can be beside the hospital bed of a loved one and trust that the same God who brought the illness is free to bring healing that will bring that loved one out of the bed. And so you pray, you pray for an end to that disease that is under God's sovereign control. God is sovereign over restoration and blessing also. And that is a powerful motivation to pray. So what then is The lesson from the book of Job. I think the lesson really is here. God is free. He's not constrained by formulas to bring into the lives of saints calamity or blessing. Because of their behavior, he is free to bring blessing or suffering as he chooses that will be for their good and for his glory. Through his pain, Job shouts for us God is big enough to be trusted. We have undertaken this study of Job in a time of worldwide suffering. And we've subtitled it Loving God in a Crisis. And there are some who have suffered physically because of a disease. Or they've suffered emotionally because they've lost a loved one. Or they've suffered relationally because they're stuck at home in a difficult, difficult relationship. Still others have suffered financially. Financially. And we have to ask the question, when we are suffering, can we trust in a God who is sovereign and free? And can this trust in God be something that is for us and not just for Job? Can we love a God like this in our day like Job did in his And I think there are some examples that I could commend to you from our own church. But I'm not sure that that would be completely appropriate. And so I commend to you a couple um, examples, I think beautiful examples, from more recent history um, that I think you'll hear the echoes of Job in their testimony. The first is Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards. And he took an experimental vaccine for uh, smallpox and passed away. And when she heard of her husband's death, these were her words to her daughter. She said, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness, that we had him so long. But my God lives and He has my heart. What a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God. Therefore, and there I am, and there I love to be. Wow. May God grant us grace to respond to tragedy with such faith and hope. The second example is George Mueller, who is known as a great man of faith, and uh, founded and sustained orphanages in England uh, simply by prayer. And he found himself in a similar situation. His wife became ill with rheumatic fever, and he prayed. This is his prayer. He said, Yes, my Father, the times of my darling wife are in thy hands. Thou wilt do the very best thing for her and for me, whether life or death, if it may be. Raise her up yet again, raise up again my precious wife, thou art able to do it. Though she is so ill, but howsoever thou dealest with me, only help me continue to be perfectly satisfied in thy holy will. Well, his wife did die of that disease, and Mueller preached her funeral sermon from Psalm 119.68. Which says thou art good and doest good and he had a three-point sermon point one god was good to give her to me point two god was good to leave her with me and point three god was good to take her from me And so with George Mueller and with Job, I want to assure you that God is good. He is good in your plenty. He is good in your loss. He is good in your pleasure. He is good in your pain. He is good in your happiness and in your unhappiness. He is good when you are loved and he is good when you are lonely. The message of the book of Job is that you can love God in a crisis. And in order to do that, you don't need to reduce him to a formula. You don't need to shrink him into a religious relic that you can understand. You can simply love him for who he reveals himself to be. A sovereign and free God who takes delight in his servants. Who himself is good and powerful. He controls for his ends the physical universe and the moral universe, and he orchestrates and ordains the events of your life for your good and for his glory. May he be praised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that I have not acted like I understand everything here. The mystery of this universe and the place of evil in it, the problem of suffering, your goodness and power. Father, all of these things are beyond my comprehension, but Lord, I am thankful that you have revealed yourself to be good. You have revealed yourself to be sovereign and free and trustworthy when my heart breaks because my circumstances are so painful. And so Father, I pray for each person who listens here. May they have a firm trust anchored in the forgiveness purchased for them by the Lord Jesus on the cross. May they find that as an anchor for their souls so that they see in you a God who loves them deeply, who delights in them, yet who is sovereign and free to bring calamity and blessing. God, may you help us to love you for who you are in all of your glory, in all of the ways that we do understand you, in all the ways that we don't. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.